The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour are the gentlemen behind What the Fuck Happened in 1971, Ben Prentice and the man known as Hack. I want to have you guys just introduce yourselves individually. Who are you guys? Uh, maybe Ben first to you. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved, interested in financial markets, in Bitcoin, obviously, in particular, and why the focus for you on 1971? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Michael. And thanks for having us, man. I've just always been in technology, known about Bitcoin for a very long time, but uh, didn't understand it at all. And, you know, 2017 happened. And I think a lot of people at least lifted an eyelid and kind of glanced over at it. And I just I, I, I did what we call in the you know Bitcoin. I fell down the rabbit hole. I, I just didn't understand why the price was moving around and I had to understand it. And that led me down a rabbit hole of understanding, like you said, financial markets, economics, and I'm still falling down that rabbit hole today. And part of that journey was looking at the gold standard. Obviously, you know, if you're trying to invent the new money, you got to look at what the previous monetary system was compared to the current monetary system compared to the potential new monetary system. And that break, I think we, you know, me and Hack over here identified a, an inflection point in the data that we we found interesting, and we threw a bunch of charts up on a website, and now we're here talking to you today. So again, great to be here. And Hack, same uh, same series of questions to you: who you are, your background, and your interest in in all this. Yeah, sure. Uh, real quick though, like Ben is just as much a part of this as I am. I'm on the Twitter account right now, but obviously only one of us can speak on it. But I just want to make that caveat. I'm a software engineer. I was really just like super into economics. And that was actually how Ben and I met. We just loved to read Austrian economic books and geek out about them together and talk about monetary history. And and that naturally just kind of led us to this point where we made this meme, which we had no idea that this website with charts on it would end up gaining the traction that it has. I think over the last few years, it, it generates about a million views per year, which is pretty crazy considering it's just charts. So Ben and I have kind of just, we're just two nerds who are kind of just along for the ride and, and happen to make this website that a lot of people found value in. All right. So, and, you know, since it's two of you, any of you obviously are more likely to chime in and, and you know, engage here. But the um, the charts that you put up, so you got a number of charts there. First of all, how did you go about curating those charts in terms of not just what they're showing, but even the order with which you're trying to stress the point about 1971? Yeah, it's, it's funny, Mike, because, like, basically... 
the, the genesis of the website is kind of the answer to that question is that we were just kind of arguing with people online about <laughs> economics and, and the gold standard and I had amassed this collection of charts on our phones and we'd, you know, argue with somebody like, look at this data and we have to go dig and find the chart. And we're like, what if, you know, one day a hack came, he's like, what if, he, if we just throw these up on a website and just ask people WTF happened in 1971? So like, actually some of those charts we found, again, like I said, like literally doing research on the end of the gold standard, if you go to Bretton Woods, you go to end of the gold standard, these web pages, like you'll see some of those charts. And we just, we put the most product, provocative ones up, you know, it, it is a meme. Sometimes we're just trying to get people thinking, but uh, that's really all it is. Yeah, I would add too that like a lot of the charts, they, they come from lots of different places. Some of them come from like, if you just go to the, the Bretton Woods shock or the Nixon shock Wikipedia page, like Ben said, you could find some of them there. Others are very obscure, like sought out from very obscure data sources where like there was a time when I was just going through, you know, almost every chart series I could find with like the St. Louis Fred or like a lot of indicators like on trading, uh, trading economics or, or things like that. And really just looking for data anomalies that kind of fit the meme, if that makes sense, because it, it is provocative, right? It's like intentionally provocative. Like I think, and that's really been, there has been a lot of curating, like to try to make it look like as dramatic as possible, because really what we're interested in is just getting people to ask the right question, because it's such an important question to ask too. But also I, I would be remiss if I didn't add that uh, a lot of those charts are actually have been sent to us by people over the years that have like visited the website and seen it and then be like, oh, hey, have you ever seen this? And they'll show us like a data series with like a really interesting correlation. So we're like, well, it's got to go up there now. Yeah. Shout out to all those guys. And Michael, you know, obviously there is a lot of thought behind this. We're kind of just giving you the the kind of the overview of like our approach, right? So I don't know how where you want to dig in. Yeah, no. Well, well, I'll tell you something. What I appreciate about about what you guys have done is that you could have easily made the entire website a case for Bitcoin by explicitly calling out Bitcoin, and you guys haven't, right? It's just sort of matter of fact. Look at all this data. Look at the break. Look at the changes in trends. I think that's a really good sort of starting point for a lot of people wanting to understand where we are today. Now, let's let's get into it a little bit um, as far as why, why 1971. I know the history of it, but provide some context <laughs> for the audience. What exactly happened in 1971? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is that, you know, Nixon inadvertently, he, he closed the gold window. He stopped redeeming gold. And this is um, only foreign central banks essentially could actually redeem their dollars for gold at this point. And at the time, France was calling his bluff and actually redeeming them and, and kind of saying, I don't, you know, I don't even know if you have all that gold in there and sending warships over the United States. And Nixon put a, an end to that. And because of the Bretton Woods system, which starts in 1944. So this is to tell you what happened in 1971, you have to go to 1944 and you have to go back to, you know, 1933 and 1913. But we have, we have a full hour. So, so feel free. Right, right. <laughs> no, but, but I think that's important. Like, you know, it, it's, Look, I always rant against narratives, but you do need to have some narrative for history. So I get that. Yeah, I mean, what could be more important than, you know, the history of monetary and fiscal policy in the United States? I mean, I can't think of much of anything that impacts the average person on a day to day basis, oftentimes without them being aware of it at all, than, than you know, their, their monetary and fiscal policies. And um, really, that's all that that's all that was going on was the United States was letting its fiscal policy drive its monetary policy. And that was ultimately why Nixon abandoned the the convertibility, you know, at the gold window is just because the United States had a whole lot more dollars than they did gold. And if 
enough foreign governments, which, which this was actually happening at the time, France was basically threatening to send warships to the United States and bring all of their gold home because they didn't like the senior edge advantage that the United States was getting through the Bretton Woods system. Because if, if you're not familiar or any of the listeners are not familiar, under Bretton Woods, all of the other foreign currencies from the nations that were participants in Bretton Woods were actually pegged to the dollar, and the dollar was pegged to gold. So the United States had a, a quite an unfair senior age advantage in terms of their ability to create new wealth by issuing new paper money. Uh, and then obviously everybody kind of cheats in a system like that too, but it's not really too much different than our system today. It's just that now the paper isn't redeemable for anything. That's actually where the term uh, exorbitant privilege comes from, I believe, is the French government criticizing the United States' position having this exorbitant privilege to print the world reserve currency that everybody else redeemed for their currency, but that we redeemed for gold and we held all the gold. And that's, that's, that's really, this is the story we think of WTF happened in 1971 is it is the long century long history of the failure of gold as a monetary technology and the supplanting through a, a bait and switch three card Monty of paper money in place of that goal. Now, it's, it's hard to disagree when you go through the charts that there was a structural break, obviously, with the end of the gold standard, Bretton Woods. Talk through for each of you, respectively, what were some of the more interesting data points that you came across, meaning charts that each of you, it's like, that really is actually remarkable. So even just looking at you know the basic one on compensation, which is the very first chart on the website, Productivity, you know, kept on uh, pushing higher. Compensation basically flatlines, you know, up 115%. That's pretty remarkable from a data point. But what are some of the things that for each of you as you went into this rabbit hole was were, were surprising? Well, we've gotten a lot of pushback on that chart you mentioned, the productivity versus compensation. But it, I think it's it's one of the more interesting ones because it's showing. So if, if you take the, take the premise that as a society, we're getting better at doing things in general. We're increasing productivity. We're increasing manufacturing process. We're increasing, you know, you don't get worse at doing something and succeed in this world. So that that process is deflationary. Uh, the advancement of technology is deflationary. So there's this deflationary vector, which should be lowering prices. And yet, as a society, we've targeted rising prices. And thusly, you're gaining productivity as a society, but I think that chart shows that you're, you're, that is not really being distributed evenly amongst the population. So I, I think it demonstrates that the break in a monetary system changed the way that we are, we, we as a society are gaining from the productivity gains of society. And that it's essentially, is, the thesis is that it's like kind of concentrating that wealth at the top. The other chart that really kind of got me on this path was from I think it's from Nixon Shock. There's a chart which shows the trade deficit, and that chart is it's you know again there's this big inflection point in 1971. And if you understand uh, Trippin Dilemma, Trippin Dilemma this is a nerdy bit here, but bear with me. It states that the country that has the world reserve currency must supply the world with that currency because they need it to transact because it's the most liquid good. It's used as the unit of count. Things are denominated in it and and literally like loans are taken out in dollars. So the world needs those dollars so that we have to export dollars. And when we export dollars, what we import, we import everything else. And that is the balance of trade change that you see on that chart. We, we went from the United States being a manufacturing powerhouse to exporting 
our dollars instead. Instead of exporting goods and services, we exported dollars and we became the financial engineering hub of the world instead of like actually building things. So it's just a, a few of the ones that really struck my my fancy. And I could talk on this topic probably a lot, but I'll try and be brief and just cover the stuff that I think is the most important. For me, the number one most important data point is the federal debt chart. Because like I said earlier, monetary policy is downstream of fiscal policy. Or yeah, yeah. Monetary policy is downstream of fiscal policy. And monetary inflation is downstream of price inflation. As as you know, we're watching happen in the world around us right now. So I think that that's really important just to for people to see that, you know, uninhibited money and credit expansion not only makes the federal debt go up, but it does make the the cost of everything else go up because you're consuming resources uh, when that happens in the present and and deferring that delayed consumption, uh, deferring saving for the future to spend now rather than later. Uh, The other things that I think are really important are like the charts that demonstrate the growth and the wealth gap, you know, like the shrinking middle class, the growth between the 1% and the 99% of wealth distribution. I think that that's really important because a lot of people overlook the effects that asset inflation have on wealth concentration in society. You know, when you live in a world where um, debt is constantly being devalued in real terms because the money supply is increasing nominally and where the, the nominal value of assets is constantly increasing, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because the rich have the financial privilege to diversify more of their wealth in um, assets, baskets of assets that appreciate thanks to inflation and are also able to better take advantage of opportunities for cheap credit that are not available to average people. One, because they have those assets that they can post as collateral for access to better credit. And two, simply because they can they can take out a lot more debt and use that to purchase more infl- more assets. And then beyond that, like the ones that I think are also really interesting are the uh, second order effects ones, like the ones that you look at and with say, oh, that that definitely had nothing to do with the gold standard. Why would they put that on here if that's what they think you know, this phenomenon of 1971 data point inflections is? But it's really, you know, when you start to think about it, you might be like, well, it could make sense. Like we understand some of the charts, like no-fault divorce laws were passed in the 1970s. Like I get that. That had an impact on why divorces went up as much as they did. But also at the same time, you know, the number one thing people fight about in marriage is money and finances. So it, it does make sense that there is a contributing stressor there, you know, that that may have some correlation with an increase in divorce being tied to severance of a sound monetary system. Yeah, and I think maybe to to play devil's advocate, and I'm in agreement with everything you guys have have said, right? So it's I'm not coming from the standpoint of trying to challenge because I believe what I'm about to say here, but it, I think in general, it's always hard to know if there's one variable that causes a structural shift. I mean, I I can clearly make an argument that maybe some of these dynamics are because of the baby boomer generation, right? Getting uh, of age. I can maybe make an argument that it's, it's partially driven by more entrance in the workforce, more women in the workforce, right? As as maybe sort of a dynamic of some of these trend structural changes. Even the point I think Ben you had mentioned about technology is is inherently disinflationary or deflationary, which helps explain the productivity side. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it just happens to be the case that the removal of the gold standard in 1971 that that caused that happened at the same time that technology was starting to accelerate. Computers start becoming more of a thing in the 80s and the 90s, internet, right? So I, I throw it back to the two of you. Have you given thought to maybe the idea that 
maybe there's a degree of truth to all this, but there's more than just that variable. And it so happens that all this is kind of happening at the same time in the cycle. Absolutely. And we've actually looked into some of these things. Like just for example, and then I'll let Hack go, we looked into the uh, woman entering the workforce and it's this gradual shift over like, you know, 40 years or something, not a marked, you know, rapid increase in exactly the year 1971, right? Yeah, I think that that started in the 40s. If I'm not mistaken. And it was a very gradual trend change in terms of the, the demographics of the working population in the United States. So, you know, you wouldn't think such a such a gradual change would have very dramatic in, inflex, inflection points at one particular point in time, you know, across all of these different data series. But certainly, like, I don't think I don't think either Ben or I think that all of this stuff exists in a vacuum and that there's a one contributing factor and absolutely nothing else you know, contributes to the correlation. I think that that's a little silly. It, it actually brings up a good point because the type of economics that Ben and I are into, which is Austrian economics, it's not really considered, it doesn't consider economics like an observable science. Um, it's an a priori science, meaning that you start with first principles that you just derive from logic and then you extrapolate out from there, uh, which is really what we did with this website. You know, it would have been a little bit different if we said, okay, we want to gather as much data as we can on economic trends of the last 50 years, put all this data in one place and and try to establish a correlation. We actually did it the other way around, which is how you think about economics if you're an Austrian. So I could see why, you know, the, the normal person who maybe learned economics in a university setting rather than Ben and I did through, you know, reading dead economists, you, you could think that like that a priori approach is, is not appropriate, but that's what Ben and I have done here. Yeah, and Michael, just jump in on one other point you brought up, just for example, the market shift in 1971-ish for computer technology is it's only further to the point that that would further increase productivity, it would be further deflationary. And thus, if you were, let's say, a central bank targeting uh, a 2% inflation by, you know, by a rule, then you are now having to distort real prices more rapidly, right? And that's why you get larger distortions in society, for example. Let's go to some of the audience. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. You, you've highlighted the crux of the problem that was actually solved by Bitcoin. If you actually go and read the uh, the software white paper from when it was first released, you know the, the author Satoshi, who we don't actually know who he was, mentioned this specifically. He said that Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer electronic cash that does not rely on trusted third parties, because what you're describing is essentially using you're you're essentially describing a, another layer built on top of specie for the settlement of like precious metals like silver certificates or fiat or currencies issued by banks or issued by governments 
are essentially settlement layers placed on top of specie, which allow it to scale You know, in a world where you're not just doing business with your neighbor down the road or where you may want more divisibility or more fungibility or all the different verifiability, all the different aspects of money that make money useful for exchanging goods and services in an economy. Make no mistake, like intentionally, there is no, there are some blockchains and or cryptocurrencies that have promised that feature of convertibility. But for all intents and purposes, economically speaking, Bitcoin is specie. It is intended to replace the base layer money of gold and silver and allow for verifiable scaling from there that doesn't rely on trusted third parties. Does that make sense? And and chaos. So just, just to add on to that, when you understand gold's current value, right? That Oh, like approximately 80% of gold today is hoarded by central banks, right? Or, you know, people, right? For monetary use, not for jewelry, not for use in electronics. Those that the rest is like the 20% or whatever. Okay. So that means that like let's just say to t- tomorrow, all the central banks sold all their, you know, they don't want gold, it's not good money anymore, and they sold it all. What would happen to the price of gold? It would drop approximately, you know, let's just say 80% ish, right? Makes sense. That 80%. Just take it as a as a for a thought experiment. I don't know what the exact numbers are. That eighty percent is what we call monetary premium. It enjoys a monetary premium, a value above its utility value as a commodity, right? That it's separate from its utility, and it only enjoys that because people are willing to hold it. The reserve demand for it, it's a monetary demand. Bitcoin's value is entirely monetary premium. The only reason people hold it. Is because they think, you know, it's it's actually a criticism of Bitcoin. You hear people say, oh, because they think they can sell it to the next guy, right? So, yeah, that's what, that's what money is. It's it's used for indirect exchange. So one of the hard, I think, the, the leaps you have to take to try to understand Bitcoin as technologies, it's it's a non-commodity commodity. It's, it's a thing that has no other use other than money. And in order for it to become money, well, people would have to recognize that and then be willing to hold it until it became big enough to function as money. And it's, it's kind of along that path. Like it, it has a, some, you know, it's, it's one of the number it's by base money. It's like in top 10 or whatever currencies of the world out of like, you know, 180 or whatever currencies there are. So it's, it's a contender at least. Yeah. It's, it's volatile, but in order to go from zero to becoming a, you know, a potential global money would require some volatility. So uh, there's just a, Kind of food for thought there. Yeah, and, and real quick, I just want to say, so I, I want to keep this focus on on you know the website and IT fifty one, and obviously you can't do that and avoid Bitcoin. I get that at the same time, but but I, I think the um, the question from my perspective on all this, forget about the idea of what's the solution, Bitcoin or or going back to the gold standard. T- to me, there's a much bigger question which I brought up in other spaces, and it's not like a new idea, but. Ultimately, if you have a democracy, is all this inevitable? Okay, and I know that sounds like a very kind of sweeping question to put out there, but I go back to this, you know, truism that I think everybody in this space knows: if you want to get elected, you got to promise more. Nobody ever gets elected for austerity. Nobody ever ever gets elected for saying we're going to cut on on spending and actually pay off our debts. Right? It's always by promising, giving more candy. So I would argue, I think Ben Franklin was actually the first one to kind of put a quote out about this point that democracy and capitalism probably really can't coexist independent of whatever monetary form you have, because if the incentive is to get elected, the incentive is always going to be to do the wrong thing by 
doing short-term actions that cause longer-term problems. Does that make sense? Like, so, so I'm curious to get your take on on sort of that part of it because to me, it's much more. That's really more the core of it. I understand the argument that it's ultimately about monetary policy and and the form of money and money being disciplined might help prevent that. But I think there's just a a bigger question there. Yeah, I agree. Like, there's a quote from Milton Friedman where he says, "You you don't change things by electing the right people. You change things by making it profitable for the wrong people to do the right things." And 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 that is, you know. I, I think that's the point is that having a monetary technology that that isn't susceptible to the problems of gold is the solution to the problem. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's worth pointing out too, that it's not like uh, th- these issues, they're not in a vacuum. Like they did not start specifically in 1971. And before that, the world had no issues. I wrote an entire article a few years ago that, that follows through Rothbard's history of money and banking in the United States from the continental era up until World War II. And then if you go and read a book that covers you know, the real history of banking and money and economics through that time period, you'll see this same story happened again and again and again and again throughout America's history, where the government, usually to fund war efforts, uh, would expand money and credit, which would send inflationary signals to the market, which would cause you know, run-ups of equities, run-ups of speculative bets on government debt or speculative bets on railroads or speculative, like just all kinds of rampant malinvestment that would then eventually liquidate when the money and credit stopped expanding. And um, very often the government would have to step in and do things like suspend the redemption of specie at these regional banks that were all over the country. You know, the money system was a lot less centralized back then than it is now, but the government still interfered in the same ways that it does today in terms of suspending that redemption to the base layer of money. When people see economic uncertainty and they want to find out, uh, kind of like what we're seeing now, when, when people are seeing this economic uncertainty and, and members of SVB want to find out who's wearing shorts and who isn't, and the tide starts going out and, and the government steps in and says, now, hold on, hold on, hold on, we're not going to let this happen. It's postponing the liquidation of that malinvestment. It's it's merely the the ability that it can be postponed uh, that continues to compound just how bad it really is instead of allowing it to play its course. I hope that that answers the question. All I can think about is how tech bros don't have shorts. Is <laughs> what's on my mind. No, no, but but I think I think it's well articulated. Yeah, I think markets demand competition, and competition has been very, very, very stifled for a very long time in capital markets. And, you know, history doesn't have a lot of examples of universal prolonged hegemony. You know what I mean? Like empires rise and fall. And I'm an American. Like, you know, I I love my country. I love where I live. I, I love the values that are represented by the Constitution and the ideas of liberty and and free markets and private property and all those things. I think they're all great. But that doesn't mean that the American empire in its current state is going to exist forever. I mean, history is is nothing but the winds of change, right? And I mean, I'm sure Ben would agree with that. Actually, I think this answer dovetails really well Michael's last point that he was making. And my answer is actually pretty similar, which is that both the gold standard and whatever the BRICS is proposing is reliant on the continued benevolence of men in power or women. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not my point. My point is the people in power. And when you understand monetary technology and the history of monetary technology, the the way that we're we're trying to explain here, and I'm probably doing a terrible job, you realize that those problems aren't fixable. 
gold will always be centralized in vaults. You, you, you heard Hack mention a few times the redeemability and specie, and these terms are really important, that people transact on the base layer of the money and they're not using tokens that represent those. Because if there are tokens that represent those and those tokens represent those by fiat, that fiat can be redacted at any given time. And for the same reason that China today doesn't want to trust the US dollar anymore, other nations are looking at that potential agreement and thinking the same thing. I don't trust China. Do you trust China? I don't personally. I know lots of other countries don't as well. I'm not saying that there won't be I think there is kind of we're seeing a shift at least towards some multipolar world. And I'm not saying that Bitcoin will supplant all these things tomorrow, but I'm saying from a fundamental perspective, the problems inherent in the gold standard are the same problems inherent in whatever they propose. Yeah, I think. And that's a roundabout way of saying that we, we think, yeah, the competition is inevitable, or at least I think I don't want to speak for Ben. I think that the competition is inevitable, especially as the U.S. seems to be kind of having its role as the world police, you know, financial hegemony shaken or, or challenged, um, is that, yes, there will be these other competitors, but ultimately we think that they are non-competitive when it comes to the magnitude to which Bitcoin improves upon the technology of money. I mean, there are lots of people all over the world in these countries that are either suffering from severe hyperinflation or extremely limited access to banking and financial services, to which Bitcoin is a godsend. And us Westerners, you know, caught up in our privilege as we often are, are very unaware of how transformative this technology is to their life. Like I would encourage everybody in the audience to go and check out something called Bitcoin Beach. It's this small grassroots community in El Salvador that was basically just uses Bitcoin as its money for like all of its commerce. And it has had absolutely incredible impacts in a society where where most people, you know, struggle to even have a bank account. Where, where opening a business or, or getting a small loan or being able to transact with their neighbor is incredibly difficult because before Bukele actually made Bitcoin legal tender in their country, they all used U.S. dollars. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I know I'm a little bit, I sit a little bit closer to the money printer than the, the majority of the people that live in El Salvador. So by the time they get dollars, you know, they're, they're devalued by orders of magnitude beyond what they are from when I spend them or when my friends spend them or when my government spends them especially by the way real, well, real, I mean, real quick i would say that uh, if i were in that position i would resign immediately because why would anybody <laughs> ever want that job damn if you do damn if you don't you're never gonna yeah. get it, right i mean it, there's a, it's like i i know everyone uh, sorry not to kind of steal thunder or anything but i do it myself right everyone always blames powell or blames the head it's never just one person i'll give you two answers real quick one nice. answer is the the meme answer which is actually no i'll give you i'll give you the the more sound answer first which is to stop printing money, right? Just just stop printing money. Turn off the money print, printer in every single form that they use, repo market intervention, FOMC, all that stuff. And let society heal itself. Uh, you know, the inflation addiction is like an alcoholic addiction. And the only cure is the hangover in the morning, right? And if you keep waking up and drinking the next day, you're never going to cure the addiction. But so if you turn off the money printer, there would be massive, massive pain, <laughs> And then eventually society can heal itself. And then the meme answer is that you just turn the, the printing press up to 11 and you, uh, ex- this is the accelerationist view. Some Bitcoiners believe that, well, if you just keep printing money, hard assets will win. 
and eventually the currencies are worthless. So those, those are my two answers. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And I would just say, you know, I have kids. I love my kids very much and I want better for them. I don't want to kick this can down the road for them to deal with, which is what I felt like my fathers did and their fathers did and their fathers did. And, you know, not consciously, like I'm not saying like my grandfather was in on this. I'm just saying that uh, societally speaking, you know, prolonging the inevitability of the situation, which is a snapback to reality, which is the fact that we can't, our government can't continue to spend like it does and our money can't continue to expand like it does without inevitable consequences that are very, very damaging to both systemically and systematically damaging to our society and how it functions. And, and you know, the poorest are the most marginalized by this. And that's what makes it really Point. sad because the, the people who are struggling the most are the ones that are the most affected by these types of things. And um, I want better for my kids. I want my kids to live in a better world. So I would rather suffer now. So to answer your question, you know, if I were in the power, I would never get in the position of power because no one would ever put me in this position of power given what I've just said. But I would, I would say, let, we're going to suffer now. We're going to choose suffering now so that our children can live in a better world. Uh, but I think that that's obtainable with Bitcoin. So that's basically what Ben said at the end there. Okay, let me just reset the room for the meaning. Everybody, please, uh, first of all, check out WTF happened in 1971.com. I'm sincere when I say this. It really is a lot of uh, phenomenal, eye-opening, curated data. You can draw your conclusions on it and you know think through it, but I think awareness is always important. And by the way, I will give you guys a lot of credit. I keep using that line, amateurs look to the right of the equal sign, pros look to the left. The fact that you guys you know, have gone to a lot of sources directly to help provide your framework without, as I understand it, sort of the kind of more formal university type of curriculum training when it comes to understanding the world, markets, investing. Yeah, I give you guys a lot of credit because that's something that's, I think, lacking in general in our society, right? Just kind of going to the source, which I think you guys have done a great job on. I know you want to ask questions, so let me go to you on on related to sort of the, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I know you kind of touched on it a little bit. Go ahead. My quick answer, and maybe this isn't the exact answer you're looking for, but the website that we have to try to tie it back into the discussion is showing a shift that happened in 1971. And, and our thesis essentially is that in general, things got worse. And I think what you're seeing today is the culmination of that five decades later, 50 years later, that the youth today, there's just the malaise. They just, there's not really a lot of hope for the future. They look at these debt charts. They look at the unfunded liabilities that the broken monetary system has taken away real hope for like a better future. So I think we need to fix the money. And I think that it's a long process. It's not going to change what you're looking to see change overnight. But you, if you show me the incentives, I'll, I'll show you the outcome. And right now the incentives are pretty messed up. I will add real quick, just again, just to provide a little bit of a counter. I, yeah, I've, there are a number of positive things that have happened since 1971. I mean, it accelerated everything. We can agree on that and made the wealth gap wider. But, you know, the, the average level of poverty is you know higher while still poor, obviously 
than it was back then. There's more safety nets. There's more. So, and I get it. That's due not, to deflation, Michael. No, 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 no sorry to interrupt. I, I, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. I, I, I hear. I'm not addressing. I'm not. What I'm trying. I'm just trying to give a counter, right, to the idea that because I do find that's another, another thing which is unfortunate. Any kind of discussion around this stuff, it's always things are so bad. It's never been as bad as it has been today. Like there are still positives, right, that happen in any society throughout time. But the, it's th- that doesn't mean we should avoid the, the thinking about the distortions. I, I think is kind of the point I want to stress. Absolutely, Mike. But you you feel my point, right? Like that 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 us lifting billions of people out of poverty or whatever it is over the last hundred years is not due to fiat money. It's not due to the gold standard. Uh, it's due to deflation. If we embrace deflation, we can get a lot more of that. We could lift up the people that John is talking about out of poverty faster. If we just let prices fall, we're afraid to let prices fall. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I, sorry, uh, go, go ahead. Uh. Ben, I, I think uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry, Ben. I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to speak for you, but I was saying that I, I know you well enough that I think you would agree with what I'm about to say. Neither of us are, are pessimists about the future. Like, you know, there, there is so. I agree with what you just said, Michael, 100. percent That the world, you know, all else being equal, is infinitely better today than it was 50 years ago. The only thing that I would say is just that that progress has occurred in spite of, you know, our interference from the government and in spite of a very corrupt and disruptive monetary system and in spite of a very parasitic legal system. We've ended up in a mo- the majority of people are much better off than they were 50 years ago. And, and that's due to the fact that humans are remarkably resilient and remarkably ingenious and oftentimes very creative at solving problems, particularly when the right incentives are in place. And what what I challenge people is to imagine what the world would look like today if our progress had not been set back in the ways which it had, you know, by by governments and by abusive, corrupt monetary systems. The world would, would be even better because that progress wouldn't have been stunted and set back as it has throughout the last century. But I, we're definitely optimists for the future, especially, you know, look, like, because where we should be looking right now is how, how can we look to technology to solve our problems? Because that's, technology is the engine that drives progress through history. You know, the, the internal combustion engine, penicillin, uh, the airplane, electricity, you know, all of these, the printing press, all of these things revolutionized the way people lived and the way that they exchanged information, the way that they traveled, the way that they did commerce, all these things changed the world. And, and we think that there's a lot of technology, very powerful technology today that can continue to drive that progress forward into the future and, and offer us a lot of the solutions to the problems that we have. Let's do one, uh, one last question, then we'll wrap up. But again, everybody, please make sure you follow WTF happened in 1971 and obviously follow Ben, the WTF account. Actually, two more questions. So sorry, just I, I realized uh, I messed up a little bit here. Let's go to... Like I said, Earlier, I, I think it's a fundamental analysis that will arrive you eventually at the conclusion that, that I've come to of these monetary technologies. And the criticism I think that I've seen that is the most salient of supplanting the world's current monetary system with a brand new monetary system is that's hard to do. It's like a chicken and egg problem that takes time. But I think you're seeing it happen from a bottom up revolution. I think it's absolutely miraculous that Bitcoin has come as far as it has. So that, that, that is the, believe it or not, like it's probably not what you're expecting to hear. I think if you dig deep into the other criticisms, you'll see that they don't hold water. That, that the, like I said earlier, and nobody's disagreed with me here, that the fundamentals 
of previous monetary technologies are inherently flawed and unfixable. They're based on fiat. Even the gold standards are based on fiat and they can always be redacted. You cannot fix that. You need a money that you can transact with on the base layer that nobody can control. So show me another way to do that and you'll have my attention. And, and by the way, well, I, I would say, real, I'm, so I'm on the same page as you on that. When I, I remember, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, I was doing a CFA chapter presentation. I always take questions at the end of the presentation. And somebody in the audience had asked me just randomly what my thoughts were on Bitcoin. And I said, I can unequivocally see the value of it for anybody that's in an emerging uh, economy where there's no real banking system. Right? And that, I, so I'm with you. I, 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 I think that's a completely rational starting point. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Bitcoin is still in its infancy. It hasn't achieved the liquidity of a global money and thus is volatile. And it's also on its, it's, it's on a path to like hyper monetization, an event we've never seen in monetary history. Usually money's monetized for a very long time. So this is starting from zero and going to nothing. And yet, even though it's in its infancy along this path, potentially to become a global money, it still functions as a good money because all it has to do is be better than the money that they have in those places. And that's the phenomenon that you're observing. I would also add that Bitcoin is more than just a money because you, you have Bitcoin the money, right, in terms of what you can hold on the ledger. But Bitcoin is also a network. And networks proliferate in the sense that every person who joins the network, every additional person that joins a network increases the value of that network. Michael, for example, if you and I were the only two people in the world with telephones, we would only be able to call each other. Uh, but if Ben got a telephone, now we could call all three of ourselves and our network just got 50% more valuable than it was before because the, the reach of it has expanded. Likewise, you know, with these people in disenfranchised marginalized people in the poorest parts of the world and even within our own country they're not just receiving you know a, a digital commodity money they're also plugging into a network that gives them global financial access to an to an emerging digital economy you know i don't, i i know a lot of you guys work in like traditional finance and those types of things but I, my background is software and i work as a software engineer and over the last few years because i'm very involved in Bitcoin and, and software development around Bitcoin, I, I very often get paid in Bitcoin, which affords a lot of opportunities you know, that I wouldn't otherwise normally have. Like, for example, I've worked for people who we don't even know each other's last names, but, but they can pay me in full you know, with nothing but a string of numbers and letters. Uh, and, and I can check and verify that my payment has been received and I can take full custody of it by myself. And I can hold those funds as a bearer asset without risk of third-party custodial collapse, like, like we're, what we're witnessing with SVB, Rumble. that's transformative technology for everybody. And, and not only that, but like those of us that use that technology here are also benefiting from the growth of that network. Because maybe there is a software engineer in, in Kenya or, or in Nigeria or in Zimbabwe or in Argentina or where, pick a place in the world. They are now plugged into this global monetary network and can be participants in this emerging global digital economy. That is huge. That is transformative for the whole of society across the planet. Yeah. Well, I don't know, by the way, Hack's last name, but, but we're still interacting. Uh, that is the perfect way to wrap the Twitter space up. So everybody, again, please make sure you follow uh, Ben Hack. This was a great conversation. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, 
but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.